From beach towels to tea towels, and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Examining the issues, this is Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome to Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. Breaking news alert! They first came for your meat, then your gas-powered cars, then your uh, uh, gas-powered landscaping equipment, then they came for your appliances, then they came for thermostat control, they came for your cheap airfare, they wanted to keep you in place with 15-minute cities, they came for your energy as they collapsed the grid with solar and wind mandates, and they've come for our rice, They've come for human breath. They've come for house plants. Uh, and they've come for a myriad of other unbelievable things. And guess what they're coming for now? Your laundry detergent pods. Clip three. New York City could be on the verge of banning laundry detergent pods. Council member James Gennaro introduced a bill this week that would make it illegal to sell or distribute detergent pods or laundry sheets that contain polyvinyl alcohol. Supporters of a ban say the packaging is bad for the environment. If approved, the ban would take effect January 1st, 2026. Yes, we wake up every day. There's some new ban usually unelected bureaucrats. To their credit, this is actually a legislator in New York City, in New York, and they're going after laundry detergent pods. This is uh, Bloomberg News, greener living. Laundry, laundry with and dishwasher detergent, so this isn't just laundry, it's your dishwasher pods, are made with polyvinyl alcohol, or PVA, and they contribute to plastics pollution in U.S. waterways. And the introduction of the bill in New York is a clarion call to rally the the scientific community to help out in this public policy question. So they're not even sure it's a problem. They just want to rally scientists by drawing attention to the fact that they're just banning stuff. That's the first instinct of all this. Let's just ban it. Let's just ban it, ban it, ban it. Well, detergent pods and sheets dissolve in the wash. PVA is ultimately a type of plastic. And the microplastics, bits of plastic less than five millimeters long and nanoplastics, one millionth, are ubiquitous sources in the U.S. waterways, the pollution. Increasingly, these tiny plastic particles are all but impossible to escape. You find them in paint, glaciers, rain. Now, we're going to have uh, Greenpeace, and I've had him on the previous show before we went video here on TNT, Dr. Patrick Moore, Greenpeace, who just talks about the fake plastic crisis. Yeah, this plastic can be all over the place. It's not really harming anything. Um, but the idea is just to start banning stuff and saying, well, now, now we've got to do this and let's rally scientists and let's have, a, let's have a debate about this. You have a debate before you take legislative action and start banning stuff, but it's all part of that way. They're, they have a war on modernity, which I hate that word because no one knows what it means. It means of modern, uh, modern times of our, our, of our current life. And this is just that whole thing. If anything causes any problem to the earth, or any potential perceived or potential problem, suddenly that becomes something that needs to be banned, and that has to stop. Uh, we we need, uh, as Alex Epstein in his great book has said, uh, we, we need human flourishing. Everything has to be looked at from a lens of how it helps humans and humans coexisting with Earth, not 
about is it harm the earth or not? And we have to give it up. We have to ban it. And that's exactly the way that we have been going on this whole world of which we live. All right. Case in point is the farm uh, farmer protests in Europe. Remember, this is the net zero uh, climate policies that are triggering this. And there's, I mean, there's some other issues, but typically it's being driven by this because what's happening is after the UN Paris Agreement was signed and endorsed by all these countries in 2015, I was in Paris at the UN summit when this all went down. I was actually the premiere of my film, Climate Hustle. Actually, the day of the premiere, while I was at the UN Paris Climate uh, Summit in Paris, uh, they actually put up wanted, environmental group put up wanted posters all through the streets of Paris with my face on it, wanted for uh, criminal du climate, or climate criminal, because I was doing the skeptical film uh, Climate Hustle at the time. Well, fast forward, these policies, which were just, I guess you could say, aspirational dreams have now become reality and they're hitting hard. We've already detailed what they did in Sri Lanka, collapsing the entire country. We showed you what they've tried to do in the Netherlands with the 10,000 farms about to be shut down, do the net zero, and the farmers fought back, formed their own political party, and hopefully are winning that battle right now. We'll see. But in the last couple of weeks, we've had riots in Paris for farmers and tractors and protesters. We've had them in Germany. Romania. We've had them at Brussels at the EU headquarters. It's now spreading to Poland, but it looks like the EU is blinking. They're pushing off uh, these uh, net zero goals, and that's a very good development. I'll probably have more on that tomorrow. Uh, but this is something that is just huge. If you fight back, I wish this had happened in March of 2020. Imagine if when the whole world said, you must stay at home, we're closing churches, we're closing schools, we're closing businesses, no more weddings and funerals. And what if people just said, hell no, and they just started going out and risking mass defiance? That is what we needed. And that's what was probably the most devastating blow is for the reaction for the general public not to do that at that time. But now... We have a lot of pushback and led by these farmers in the Europe. Well, this is clip one. These are Polish farmers protesting anti-EU green policies uh, and the government net zero policies. Let's take a look. And there you have it. So it's spreading now to Eastern Europe with Poland. And Poland, when I was there in 2000, well, I was there three times in Poland for three different United Nations climate summit. One time I left my passport on the plane there when I worked in the U.S. Senate. And luckily they were able to, I was able to work with the State Department and get a new passport, temporary one, issued within like 48 hours. It was pretty impressive. The only time I ever saw the U.S. government efficient. But Poland has always been skeptical and pushing back on this entire green agenda. I went and visited Polish uh, coal mines, uh, toured those, talked to many Polish uh, citizens and activists and, and, and uh, free market groups there. And Poland is not in on this agenda. And it's just amazing because because of this whole EU-wide net zero, all these countries are getting imposed. I mean, Europe has changed. Like, yeah, I'm a cigar smoker and I'm actually transitioning over to a pipe smoker. Uh, you know, their pipes are fascinating. Uh, but 
just to watch what the EU did with smoking policies in countries uh, you know, like Germany and Spain and England with all of these just incredibly strict, no indoor smoking edict from miles away, depending, not depending on any of the local culture, Ireland. I mean, you can't smoke anything in any pub anywhere. And it's just this top-down control. And the same thing is happening now with agriculture. It's all, it's a it's tyranny what's happening with the EU. I don't understand how these countries thought this was a good idea at all uh, to do this. I mean, I understand it sounded good on paper, but it's just it, they're going to be battling a growing EU uh, technological technocracy bureaucracy that's going to be unending. And so it's good to see Poland fighting back. It's good to see all this happening in Brussels with all the farmers. And it looks like they're backing down. Unlike Canada, where Justin Trudeau declared, we talked about this on Friday with Andrew Lawton, who wrote the book on the trucker convoy protest. Uh, they did not declare them domestic terrorists. They did not declare a national emergency for the first time. They did not uh, take away their bank accounts and insurance. So I give the EU some credit. They're not as tyrannical as Justin Trudeau. So, hey, that's always a good development when you're not as bad as Justin Trudeau of Canada. Okay, uh, Joe Rogan. Uh, I don't know what to say. I've been. I never really knew much about this. My only exposure to Joe Rogan. I don't really watch UFC fighting. Was a Kevin James movie um, about wrestling about 2010, and he was in that as a sort of bit player. And I'm like, oh, Joe Rogan. So I didn't know much about him. Then I knew he had the big podcast. And I'd seen, I think, Candace Owens on his podcast. This was like 2018, maybe. And he was standard liberal. He was a Bernie Sanders supporter. And on climate in particular, he was grilling Candace Owens. And it's fascinating. This is back in 2008. His defense of why he believed that climate change was a crisis was citing the United Nations and the, the, NASA, the NASA consensus all the stuff, it would be like someone now saying like, well, of course, the vaccine is safe and effective. And of course, COVID was going to have killed the, the uh, Spanish flu-like levels. I'm, I'm, I, that's what Anthony Fauci said. That's what the CDC said. That's what, uh, you know, the World Health Organization, it's just, it's credential, uh, these big bureaucratic institutions that are pushing a government agenda where the government and politics dictates the science that they take. That's what Joe Rogan used to be all about. And then I, you know, I would basically say the same thing that happened to Bill Maher, the same thing that happened to um, Russell Brand, the same thing that happened to Jimmy Dore. And I'll have a Jimmy Dore clip tomorrow, who used to be, uh, uh, you know, a progressive liberal, and now it's like, wow, he's doing stories on greening the earth and on climate change. You got to hear his reasoning, and I'll have that clip for you tomorrow. But, uh, but Joe Rogan has come a long way because you could never go on the Joe Rogan show and say, well, yes, of course, masks work and lockdowns work and the vaccines are safe and effective. And he'd say, why are you saying that? Well, because the Center for Disease Control said it. Anthony Fauci said it. But that's exactly what his position was on climate change uh, years ago. And he was grilling uh, Candace Owens on this as though, like, how could anyone be against these are respected institutions of our government? How could you be against it? Like the Pentagon doesn't lie. The NASA would never lie. I mean, you know, this is he's come full circle. This is Joe Rogan now on electric vehicles. You got to watch this. I love this clip. It's clip two. Joe Rogan explaining the folly of EV mandates and the ban on gas powered cars. They just can't wait to put more controls on people in any way, shape, or form. They're trying to outlaw internal combustion engines by 2035. No Smart, new sales. Yeah. In the summertime, they tell people not to charge their cars because the grid's going to go down. 
Like, what are you going to do? You're going to do a radical upheaval of the grid in 11 years? No, you're not. I'm sure Newsom can get it done. <laughs> uh, he's getting it. I mean, Joe Rogan is as red-pilled as you can get on what the powers of government are doing on COVID, on energy, on climate. He is. I, I haven't actually heard his take on climate science, but I'm a, pretty sure it's at least similar to RFK Jr., who says point blank, I don't believe, uh, I will not mention climate change in this in this race for president because climate change has been hijacked by the World Economic Forum, the United Nations, World Health for totalitarian control of society. Boom, done. You don't have to have a climate debate. That's it. I love that. Um, so I wanted to show you this. This is clip four. This is Nebraska. In addition to the EV mandates, they're trying to push these solar and wind mandates on us. Uh, and this is now, this is Nebraska and USA. One hailstorm, single hailstorm, reduced a multi-million dollar solar park with 14,000 solar panels into a pile of toxic debris within minutes. This is from Wide Awake Media. Uh, take a look at clip four. A hailstorm disaster in Nebraska, USA, reacted immediately and turned a multi-million dollar investment, a solar park, into a pile of toxic debris. Within minutes, hail destroyed 14,000 solar panels with a total capacity of 5.2 megawatts. The complex was planned by the investors to produce green energy for 25 years, but in reality, it only made it to four years. And there you go. These All these projections, well, we project by this and we'll be carbon neutral by 25, 25 years. This will be, oh, it only went at four years. All the stuff that they do is on the green energy is all on paper. That's why I always say it's so difficult to have like an actual debate because a green activist can, in many cases, just win because it's so simple. It's the same, same I remember years ago, Walter Williams, the economist, explained and I interviewed him many times and I was a student of his and he actually cited me in some of his books and columns. But he actually said, it's very hard sometimes to win these arguments like capitalism versus socialism because the capitalism, you're defending it warts and all. And you're dealing with reality. So you're, you're arguing reality against socialism, which is utopianism. And utopianism can be anything you want it to be. You can make any claim. You can say anything you want because it's not real. And you can say, oh, well, what about the Soviet Union? Well, the Soviet Union, they didn't try socialism correctly. And there's no, it's all, it's inequity. So you're, you're arguing, in other words, the words of Walter Williams, you're arguing capitalism with warts and all, with the failures, with this utopian vision of socialism that has no flaws in that person's eye. And it's the same thing when it comes to green energy. You're arguing over a green utopian vision of bean counters who have on these little spreadsheets, oh, well, we project by this year, this will happen. And then with the car sales, gas powered cars, once we ban them, they'll drop down. And once we ban coal, that'll drop down. And once we start restricting massively natural gas, and they just have this whole little accounting book and they have this whole future plant Boom, you go a couple years and the whole plan's shot to hell. That's exactly what happens. And it's amazing because if you go back, this all began, really, really began. This, you know, obviously Rachel Carson with DDT bands, but really, I think more even influential than her because with pop culture was Paul Ehrlich and the population bomb. Well, he was 19, uh, I think it's 1968 book. 
And he became like a regular on Johnny Carson, very popular figure in the media. And all he did was just predict doom and gloom and population control. He projected uh, that we needed uh, sterility agents in our water. First, he's mentioned it in Africa, then later said the United States. And it's incredible because he also talked about uh, basically that there were so many people, he talked about timelines and deadlines that you could verifiably look at. He'd say England would be blue steam in 10 years. He said on Johnny Carson, I think 1980, that we all know that oil won't be around in 10 years. We were running out, right? He's a peak oil guy. None of it came true. All his predictions failed. And then years later, he was asked about it. And he said, well, they didn't fail. I mean, you know, they're, they're still going to happen. They're just the timeline was a little off. I didn't, you know, he, he, his regret was giving the specific timelines. And by the way, climate activists have learned from that mistake. They don't actually give, they're a little bit more careful now with a lot of these timelines, although not really. Prince Ch King Charles hasn't learned and several others, AOC, they still give the deadlines. But in many cases, a lot of these deadlines are by 2080, by 2100. Uh, they pick something where the person making the prediction and the people hearing it will be long dead by the time you can verify it. And a lot of that is the failed legacy of Paul Ehrlich. Well, on this whole clip, on this whole uh, issue of population control, uh, they, this is C founder of CNN, Ted Turner. This is an old clip. It's about 15 years old, but it's just great. He has six kids, okay? Multiple marriages, six kids probably from the different marriages. This is 2008. He's talking about the need to reduce the world's population by 5 billion people to prevent global warming. Let's go roll clip five. What's the second highest priority? The second priority? biggest thing is? is global climate change. Okay. We've got to... Uh, and, 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 and for so many reasons, we've got to move off of fossil fuel. Not doing it will be catastrophic. We'll have eight degrees, we'll be eight degrees hotter in 10, not 10, but in 30 or 40 years. And basically none of the crops will grow. Most of the people will have died and the rest of us will be cannibals. Civilization will have broken down. What The few people that are left will be living in a, in, in a failed state like Somalia or Sudan. And, and living conditions will be intolerable. The droughts will be so bad, there'll be no more corn growing. It, it will, the, the, not doing it is suicide. And then after that, we've got to, we've got to stabilize the population. When I was born, no, there were So too, what's wrong with the population? I mean- With too many people. That's, what, that's why we have global warming. We have global warming because too many people are using too much stuff. But if there were less people, they'd be yeah, using less stuff. It, Mr. Turner, um, I was wondering if you think it's a good idea to reduce 90% of the population because we are being overpopulated by a lot of... 90%. 80? Prince Philip said 80, sir. Um, I go with 85. I think 2 billion is about right. Right, me too. Thank One you. Exactly. One child policy. That was great. I love that. I love that Gonzo journalism. That's a clip from Wide Awake Media as well. Um, there's so much to unpack there with Ted Turner. Now, first of all, he's faded from the public life over the years, maybe because he's made these bizarro claims like this, but this wasn't bizarro. This wasn't, it's not like, oh, he's an outlier. I mean, this is the mainstream thinking. They'll they'll put a better face on it, the John Kerry's and the Al Gore's and UN officials. But I mean, this is actually in their literature. This is from John Holdren. This is from Paul Ehrlich. This is from Hans Schulenhuber, the German climate advisor. They believe the carrying capacity of the earth is only 1 billion, maybe 2 billion. That's an elimination of 5, 6 billion people. And just the bollocks and nonsense 
of what Ted Turner spouted there about there'll be droughts and crops won't grow and all these. None of that's true. CO2 is fertilizing the earth. We have record crop growth. Uh, and even NASA is acknowledging this. I mean, it just goes on and on. And of course, you have the EU commissioner. I showed the clip last week where they're now claiming that the farmers are protesting due to climate change. It's climate change policies which are driving this misery. There is nothing unusual going on with the weather. Nothing. Nothing unusual going on with the climate. And that's the science, if you want to speak to it. Um, but it's really scary because Ted Turner, very influential, very powerful member of our elite society, this is what they believe. This is what they talk about. It's so blunt coming from him to say that out loud. Uh, that was Charlie Rose, uh, PBS, who, of course, later got disgraced with the Me Too sex scandal movement, and he was booted out of there like yesterday's news. I, you know, a lot of people hate the Me Too movement. There's a lot of negative aspects, but wow, I, really, there's a lot of good aspects to it, too to fell some of these powerful people who were so arrogant, people like Matt Lauer and people like um, Charlie Rose and uh, and others, even people they went after Dustin Hoffman, some of those stories, if they're half true, they were just vile how they took, how they took advantage of the young actresses and all that examples. Anyway, um, we're gonna have to take a break, but I just thought that's a great clip. Uh, Ted Turner, loved it, loved it. Uh, when we come back, we're going to have Dr. Kat Lindsay, a Croatian-born, American-trained, board-certified family physician. We're going to be talking about vaccine injuries uh, and the global medical lies, global tyranny. We'll talk about the World Health Organization. We're going to talk about vaccine mandates. We're going to talk about big pharma. We're going to talk about a whole host of issues relating to public health and medicine. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. Stay tuned. TNT's Darren Denslow. Yeah, I'm talking about the illness. Actually, that has done, has been doing the rhymes. Not have we only seen a, uh, a mass influx of people waving their COVID tests online. Look, I got a red line. It's like, oh my God, people are testing. Or people, you know, trying to encourage others to wear their masks. Um, but there has been a talk of a dry cough. There have been doctors coming out saying we've seen loads of cases of that. Uh, have you been suffering from, you know, a bit of cough and flu or cold or COVID? Well, Darren, I... COVID. I, I just I just did my eighth test oh, and okay. um, I, I'm just going to keep doing it until I get lines and lines. Why? Well, because work's coming back up, isn't it? Digging deeper with D.D. Denslow on today's News Talk TNT. I didn't ask to be thrown in the streets with nowhere to go. So I didn't think I'd survive. But I did ask for help, and Covenant House was there for me. One in 10 young adults will experience a form of homelessness this year. For these kids who didn't ask to be put in this unthinkable situation, Covenant House is there. Covenant House helped me break the cycle of homelessness in my family. They gave me the love that I needed. Over 2,000 young people will sleep safely in a Covenant House bed tonight. When youth who are experiencing homelessness have a hot meal, a safe place to sleep, medical care and love they can overcome heartbreaking challenges and have a brighter future they just really genuinely just wanted to help me succeed and i'm succeeding i'm a i'm a speaker i'm an author covenant house really helped me and really helped mold me into the woman i am today if you or someone you love is asking for help go to safeplacetosleep.org today if you're talking about it we're talking about it today's news talk radio tnt Welcome back to Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. All right. 
Uh, joining us now is Dr. Kat Lindsay, a uh, American trained board certified family physician in Texas. And she's also a fellow of the American College of, hope I say that right, osteopathic family physicians. Uh, and she's involved with organizations, including the Global COVID Summit. And her focus is on, I guess, vaccine injuries and her, uh, the basically the global medical lies. Welcome to the program, Dr. Lindley. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Dr. Lindley. Okay. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in sort of battling what you could call a big pharma, big medicine, and big government, and all the uh, the, the uh, distortions of medical science that they do. Uh, I'm, I was born in Croatia at that time was Yugoslavia. So when everything started happening, I saw this from two different sets of eyes. One was a physician. They didn't understand why we were told not to treat the patients, to tell them to go to the hospital until they can't breathe. And the other one was someone who kind of felt that this was more a global play because never in the history of the world have we had all our leaders agree on exactly the same wording, like build back better or the same messaging. And um, as I got involved, I really, in our group, I'm the one that looked at all of this more from the global perspective and connected with different organizations around the world. And I do emphasize a lot of what's happening with the World Health Organization and the treaty and amendments to international health regulation. All right, so before COVID came along, were you active in, were you active in any of this stuff or did you just get active after you saw the horror of covid lockdowns and all the mandates what was your role before this or did you, uh, as a practicing doctor you know i left croatia when i was 18 so i was yeah. a young person pretty much you know cuddled by the family and i went to live in italy this was just as the balkan war was starting so i started living on my own uh, and traveling the world. So when I went to medical school here in the States, I was always, I always tended to lead and not follow. I was president of several organizations, even as a student. So before COVID, I was involved in free um, market medicine. Because what most people don't realize in the United States, uh, most physicians are now employed and they practice a sort of corporate practice of medicine. And I think that's why you show that most physicians didn't really um, respond to their patients when the patients were kind of saying, well, I don't want this, you know, whether it's the vaccine or I wanted different treatments. The physicians were more kind of in line with what the agencies were telling them and what the employer was telling them. So I was involved before COVID just because I understood that private practice of medicine is the only way to truly serve a patient. When did that shift occur? I mean, I remember about the time in the U.S. Obamacare came around, I guess, which would have been what, 2011, 12, it was passed. I remember like old school doctors, basically early retirements, they couldn't afford it. And then everyone, like you said, they went to work for big, big medical companies like Johns Hopkins and big hospital systems. So you lost the, you lost a lot of that because I think of malpractice insurance and other regulations, you lost a lot of those independent small time family practices and everything became sort of corporatized or as you say, I guess, retailer. Um, how did that come about? Was it Obamacare or did it happen decades before that? When did this trend, like, in other words, if you can look at global health, even or U.S. health, the difference between 1970, 1990, 2010, and today, was it just a 
slow evolution or was it pretty good until boom there was a certain point do we have a do we have a timeline on it i think it started happening probably early 2000s slowly but it sped up with the obamacare because there was a lot of um, strings kind of attached from the provider side and the hospital side and the hospital started saying that this is a lucrative business for them and started buying up the uh, private offices because like you know if they buy a cardiologist uh, group and then gastroenterology group and everything they can keep everything in the house and then the billing it's very complicated but it became a huge business for most of these corporations and as that was happening doctors lost their independence as they lost their independence they kind of start you know you have to reach certain quality measures to get paid whether it's the bonus or even just to reach your rvus uh, and I, and then the electrical medical the electronic medical records i don't know if you go to your doctor when it's last time you went to see a doctor but most of the time these electronic medical records the doctor spends more time charting and clicking the boxes than actually looking at the patient yeah. So some of us recognized that and uh, left the system even before COVID, which actually made it easier do, during COVID to be independent and listen to the patient. But some of us left and I practiced something called direct primary care, which yeah, is a membership said, fee. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. It's, so, it's kind of, yeah so, so this is really nice because there is a direct primary care, which is for like, you know, primary care doctors. And then you have direct specialist care. And ultimately, like for me, it's a membership of a fee practice. It's affordable, so families can afford it. And they have 24-7 access to, to the doctor, to me. So all my patients have my cell phone number. They can reach me anytime. And it's convenient for them and for me. Does regular, like if you have an, a job and you're, you have health benefits with an employer, does that cover your type a practice or it does not cover it? In other words, are you will you take insurance, you know, employee benefit insurance coverage? So I don't take insurance. Uh, oh, so okay. they would have to pay for me. But if it comes to anything, uh, radiology, labs, medications, I still have all my numbers within the system. So I can order them and they would get reimbursed for whatever needs to be done outside of the office. All right, we'll get to that a little bit more in depth, but let's just go back to the problem. So Obamacare comes along, things get mm -hmm. pretty corporatized and the doctors are just employees. They have to toe this sort of corporate line. They can't dissent ultimately. And this, of course, all culminates, at least I think with a great awakening of the global population with COVID in, in March of 2020. So let's walk through that as a medical practicing medical doctor. What what did you expect when you first heard of COVID and what happened to you? What what were your thoughts when you saw what Anthony Fauci uh, and the CDC and NIH were doing in the World Health Organization when they said, copy China uh, if you want to stop this virus? And of course, that meant massive lockdowns, massive tyranny, closing churches, canceling weddings, funerals, schools, jobs, stay-at-home orders, eventually mask mandates, and eventually vaccine mandates. Walk me through that as a doctor. Did you expect that? And what happened when it started happening? Did you think it was like, uh, you know, do you think it was going to end quickly or how, you know, what was your reaction? Well, none of it made sense from a physician point of view, at least to me. Uh, I had my own private practice, but I also worked in urgent care. Um, so I'm considered a uh, first responder. 
And uh, if you have something that's unknown and you don't know what to do with it, you might not have a cure for it, but you know how to mitigate symptoms of it. So, you know, when people present in infectious stage and then inflammatory stage, you there are certain medications we can use. So when they told us, and I was working at urgent care at the time, the hospital specifically said, if anyone comes with the symptoms of COVID, don't see them, send them to the ER. And then patients would be going to ER if they were very far along, they would get admitted to the hospital, end up on ventilator and all that. And if they weren't, they would be sent home and, and told to take ibuprofen and Tylenol. Again, that doesn't make sense. Even if you don't know what to do, maybe you tell them to take vitamins and cold medicine if you don't want to give them antibiotics and steroids or whatever. And then, you know, they were told, well, when you are at home and you're kind of all alone and you feel like you can't breathe, come back, right? So that whole response never made sense. And, and then along been, the line, go ahead. Well, so that would have been before uh, the vaccine development, before emergency use authorization, a lot of it. This is the initial. So it wasn't even like you could say, oh, well, they were doing this because they didn't want to. Well, maybe they were. Maybe that was the goal, to suppress. They didn't want mm -hmm. any treatment to basically take away emergency use authorization. I, I mean, that's getting off topic maybe for the moment. But if you wanted to continue or comment on the reason for that. Well, that's true. I think, and, and I'll explain to you how I kind of explained this. So that it was that physician response that was really nonsensical. And then I started doubting CDC when CDC said to, uh, when they started talking about masking. In a sense, every year in a hospital, doctors have to go and get tested for our N95 mask. They know what size we are, but every year they do it. You put a mask on, they put a helmet on your, on top of it, and then they spray you with some different um, molecules, and one of them is saccharin. If you taste saccharin in your mouth, that means that the seal is not proper and that viruses and different pathogens can get in. So when CDC started saying, you know, you have to wear that whole suit, and then they ran out of suits, so they said, well, just wear N95 mask, and then they went to wear surgical mask. At one point, they even said wear a bandana, and that's when, as a doctor who always believes CDC, I said, this is load of whatever, and I've lost confidence in them. So this is all happening at the same time. And then one thing I recognize, and I think the reason this was happening this way, you know, because I grew up in communism, I recognize fear, right? If you watched Fox News, C, you know, CNN, whatever you watched, the numbers kept on going up. There were always red colors, always like alarming, and the thicker at the bottom kept on like going up, 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 and all those you know, lines were going up. So by instilling fear, and then they're saying you have to be six feet apart or you have to stay home, you can go to work, they create this environment where you have fear, isolation, so that people can talk and discuss what's happening and try to come up with solutions. And then they start this bargaining phase, which was if you're six feet apart, you can stay in line and go to the grocery store. Or if you wear a mask, you can do this. You know, if you're sitting in the restaurant wearing, uh, you can take off your mask, but if you're standing in the restaurant, you can, you have to keep the mask on. So all of these things to me, I recognize that this was more than the virus taking over, you know, the world, which in itself was a little bit um, crazy as it was, you know, propagated to us. 
don't know if you're aware of it, but Anthony Fauci about a week or two ago literally admitted there was no science to support social distancing whatsoever. He said it was, quote, just something that happened. And of course, he was happy to go along with it. He was happy to go along with anything as long as it was tyrannical restrictions. So you saw all this. You mentioned your growing up in a communist country, former Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. Did it, did it, how did it tell us a little bit about how that felt like as an echo? It was almost, you know, because you saw if you could feel the government mandating every aspect of our lives and sort of the government, this is a weird thing to say, but the people in charge, whether it was the public health figures or the the governors issuing executive orders uh, or even the media amplifying it, they seem to relish this role. They love, you look at people like Governor Cuomo in New York and the media reaction, he became like a, a Fidel Castro strongman, threatening business owners and telling people they had to comply or else and the government was going to come for him. And, how did that how did this feel similar to growing up under uh you know soviet dominated yugoslavia so you know i was a child and i was pretty much sheltered by a lot of it but i do remember that element you know there was always a little bit of fear of things you're not supposed to do you know one of the things uh we grew up catholic and i wasn't really supposed to talk about church in school because school is considered you know kind of almost like government so there were a lot of rules and things that I knew I'm not allowed. So it was always that kind of, you know, you you feel it almost in your your bones, like that thing I'm not supposed to talk about. Um, And then when this happened here, it just got to the point that, I don't know if you remember, I think it was Mississippi where the uh, sheriff's department was arresting people for uh, going to church because they told them they can't go anywhere. And it's like, why did they go after churches? You know, yeah. why did they close churches down, but then close down the liquor stores? And what we've seen here in my area of Texas is we saw a lot of abuse happening at home during these lockdown, whether it was children or spouses and things like that. So there were all these things that we were doing that made no sense. And they should have never been done if they really looked at the public health. But they didn't. They just made, like you said, made up these different things I said well that sounds good you know like 12 feet apart is too much three is too little nine is kind of so let's go with six you know it's like ridiculous arbitrary things they did and then as far as uh you know governor Cuomo I still remember I think I was um in the car listening to his conference because I was listening to something on the radio and he was eating a meatball sandwich in front of everyone and talking how good his meatballs sandwich that he makes at home are and i'm thinking to myself he's trying to you know have a press conference about things that new york is doing and he's talking about the meatball sandwich so it was all ridiculous right it was a, it was a show and of course he was taken down by the same regime that promoted you know uh, that uh, promoted him i don't understand he must have done something to cross someone because they went after him with very old charges of harassment and he disappeared quickly okay so all this happens. Tell us like how it affected you. You worked at Urgent. Were you at, working at Urgent Care during the height of COVID in spring of 2020, summer 2020? Were you there? I was um, because I was trying was the- to build my own practice. So I was doing some shifts in the Urgent Care. And then as the things got a little bit crazier, I spent more time in my private practice because what I realized, there are a lot of papers before this that were 
good and telling us that like hydrox, uh, hydroxychloroquine is good for SARS-CoV-1 and it's good for these type of mRNA, you know, of this type of RNA viruses. So, um, and I knew Peter McCullough and all of these giants, you know, Richard Urso and all these other doctors. So what I did is really stay low and take care of my patients and I took care of them during you know the initial wave we used hydroxychloroquine primarily with steroids and other things and then when delta came along we ended up using ivermectin a little more but essentially i just did my job and um stopped listening to the nonsense now uh, let me ask you this because i've asked other guests that come on talking about this medical tyranny i remember well because my daughter um had covid and the, the, the doctor wanted to pres- prescribe um uh, hydroxychloroquine and the, the CVS pharmacy, the Walgreens pharmacy, none of the corporate pharmacies would fulfill it. They said, no, we're not doing that. Because at that point, I guess the CDC and the uh, the, uh, the uh, NIH and others had said no to any of this alternative medicine. They were they wanted the, the vaccine basically to be that or remezidir. How do you say that word? I'm probably butchering it. But remdesivir. Remdesivir. The other treatments. So had you ever in your lifetime witnessed pharmacists at corporate retail chains telling patient, telling people to come to no, we don't care what your doctor said, we aren't giving you that prescription. So we had to find some independent pharmacist like 45 minutes away who had like a secret stash at the time to get the hydroxychloroquine. Uh, what was going on there? And had you ever witnessed that in your lifetime? Before COVID, uh, pharmacists have been trying to expand their um practice um, by asking to do like strep testing in the pharmacy and things like that. Every once in a while, they would send you back this note. Well, why do you need that medication or whatever it was? But it wasn't to this extent that it happened during COVID. Uh, What happened there is a lot of pharmacy boards have gotten, I mean, a lot of pharmacies have gotten letters from their pharmacy boards telling them specifically not to dispense this medication. Um, But I, you know, Maybe because I grew up in communism, I was always very level-headed type of a person. I never, like I have a good friend, Dr. Mary Tally Bowden. If you follow her on Twitter, she always talks about pharmacies that refuse the medication. I never went that route. I just found pharmacies that I knew would do it and then send yeah. the medication to that. You know, there was it wasn't worth me losing my license over having a fight with a pharmacist. Right. Uh, so why do you think ultimately these corporate pharmacists did that? I mean, was it? I mean, where did that come from? I mean, that's just, they seemed unprecedented in my lifetime. Uh, and where did that come from? Was that just the goal of preserving the vaccine? You know, in other words, for the rush for the emergency use authorization for the vaccine of COVID, so-called vaccine, which we'll get to in the next segment about the effects of that and whether you recommend people get the COVID shot or booster. Uh, was that because were the pharmacists not doing any of these other drugs because they wanted to preserve the emergency use authorization? What do you think the reason was? Well, I wouldn't be surprised if they received uh, directives from you know different agencies telling them not to do it. Uh, one thing that m- many of us doctors recognize is when they declared war on hydroxychloroquine specifically, because they said. Um, that you cannot give hydroxychloroquine with azithromycin because the patient is going to have a cardiac event, which was really stupid because hydroxychloroquine for COVID is five-day worth of medications. For example, I have rheumatoid arthritis, and I take hydroxychloroquine every day for several years. 
and I can take azithromycin at any time. The only thing I need to worry about is every so often you have to check your eyes because there could be some changes in your um, eye anatomy. But other than that, there is no danger with hydroxychloroquine. Now, each person, you need to look at their risk and factors and things like that and see does that person have specific risk factors. But in general, it's a very good medication tolerated easily. So declaring war on ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine was something that didn't make sense and it did have most likely a purpose to these different agencies. And briefly tell us about um, ventilators. Uh, this was something that was part of the early protocols. Were you involved in that? Did anyone, did, would you ever have to, did you ever work for an institution, anyone where you said you need to ventilate these patients? Tell us why that was recommended and why that was eventually abandoned after enough doctors got together. Well, it's hard to tell it. You know, I, I'm not a ICU doctor and I didn't really do any hospital care. So, uh, but in retrospect, I think why they had to ventilate patients until they figure out what to do is because we told them to stay home until they can't breathe. So when they came to the hospital, their numbers were probably so severe, you know, like their blood gases and different things that they thought ventilating would help. But what they realized along the way that was doing more harm than good, and at some point it was abandoned. Interestingly, um, Medicare and Medicaid, the, the Center for um, you know, Medi Medicare Services, I think CMS, um, they were paying hospitals um, a lot of money for patients who were ventilated. So there is you know, this financial thought incentive. that there was some financial incentive there. But I would hope uh, that while hospital might have had some financial incentive that the doctors uh, were disregarding that. Well, unfortunately, a lot of people died because the financial incentives would make it happen without question first, and then they get the results, and then you have to stop it. All right, we have to take a break. Uh, when we come back, I'd like to talk to you about COVID vaccine, in quotes, and whether you recommend it and uh, what the effects of that have been, you think. So we're talking to Dr. Kat Lindley, uh, American board-certified family physician in Texas and a fellow of the College of Osteopathic Family Physicians, among other groups. We'll be right back after these messages. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. By now, you probably heard all about the two police officers in New York City's Times Square that were beaten by a gang of illegal thugs. Four of them were arrested and released on bail, and they're now headed to California, and they're probably there by the border of Mexico already. But there's more to this. Stuff we haven't heard yet until now. There is this one percenter, you know, criminal element that looks at a different opportunity here. These individuals, I went over their rap sheets yesterday, multiple charges, grand larceny, robbery, attempted robbery, grand larceny, grand larceny. Uh, this particular crew operated on mopeds and scooters. They were doing organized retail theft. They were doing snatches on the street, iPhones, iPads, clothing, so on and so forth. Uh, one of them that they are still seeking has 10 charges on one day because he's part of a pattern that's been going on. That's CNN's John Miller. He's a former NYPD deputy commissioner, and he wasn't finished. I'm looking at the dates that their arrest started, which is probably close to when they got here. They've only been here a couple of months. So what the detectives are telling me is they have crews here that operate in New York, do all their stealing, then go to Florida to spend the money and then come back. And I'm like, well, why don't they just stay and steal in Florida? And they said, because there you go to jail. Oh. 
Great reporter. Keep us posted on this. this is- the silence of the CNN anchors says it all. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Ballsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on TNT. <laughs> my baby's back from the West Coast. <laughs> Hear those pictures that you asked for for your school project? First day of school, cute as a button. <laughs> so long ago. Oh, here's Grandma Florence after that flood wiped out the whole neighborhood. Sometimes I just cannot believe all the storms we've gone through here. I can only hope that we'll be able to leave this house to you one day, baby. You're our legacy. Planning for these disasters will make sure we're safe. And it's the best way to protect that legacy. Ah, those bees smell heavenly. Mm-hmm. Give mom a little credit. You know what? We should make an emergency communication plan. That way we're ready this year. Oh, great idea. At my dorm, we have emergency kits for earthquakes and wildfires, but I'm sure there's something more local I can send you with the link. Okay. Smart. I'm coming to share with you guys. Protect your legacy. Plan for natural disasters today. Visit ready.gov forward slash plan. Fearless, informative, and unfettered. Mark Morano is unleashed on today's news talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back to Unleashed on TNT with Mark Morano. Okay, we're back on TNT. We're talking with Dr. Kat Lindley. Uh, She's of the Global COVID Summit and an American-trained board-certified family physician in Texas. Okay, Dr. Lindley, let's talk about the COVID vaccine. Now, they became available uh, in early 2021. Were you first in line to get your shot? How much confidence did you have? Were you all excited? And did you get every single booster if you got your shot? And were you recommending it to patients? Tell us the story of the vaccine. So I didn't really have any risk factors. And luckily, my patient population was very healthy, young population. So, um, you know, most of them did not get it. Few that got it, got it somewhere else. And luckily, the ones that had it in my practice uh, seemed to be doing well, just taking care of themselves and their immune system. Um, so it, it, Texas wasn't as bad as other places, I would say. Yeah. Did you recommend it to anyone, someone 90 years old with a lot of issues? Did you just blanket say, I don't recommend this vaccine to anyone? What was your medical advice at the time? As I mentioned, I really didn't have a population that needed to be recommended at the time. And then uh, which allowed time for it to really see what's happening. And uh, our group, the Global COVID Summit came um, against it pretty, Soon, I would say, uh, several of the doctors in the group, including Dr. Richard Urso, are, are, um, have done a lot of research. And, uh, you know, the lipid nanoparticle and then the mRNA spike protein that was chosen for the vaccine showed a lot of uh, problems along the way. And, uh, you know, we all learned together that what they were saying is not true because they said it's going to stay in the deltoid but it traveled everywhere. You know, there were high concentration of it in the ovary, spleen, liver. Um, And then they said, you know, it's not gonna go anywhere, but they did find it later on in placenta and then the breast uh, milk. Um, So the platform itself has lots of problems. And the problem is that all these new vaccines that they wanna push forth are gonna be on the same platform. 
Why do you think this is? If there's all these problems, why are they still pushing for it? Uh, who knows, right? It, it's, a, it's a difficult question to answer because I would say that only um, pharma and the agencies know why. Um, I actually testified, it wasn't last June, but it would have been June of 22, I believe, uh, in front of the... Um, CDC, it was a Zoom uh, the testimony, but it was on children uh, vaccine when they wanted to introduce it into children population. Obviously, children have no risk. They did extremely well. And even according to their own data at the time, I believe eight at the time, 83% of the children already had COVID. So to give them a vaccine against something that they already have immunity didn't make any sense. Uh, so I testified twice but obviously that passed both times and they put it on pediatric uh, schedule and it's still on pediatric schedule. And a friend of mine posted something. Uh, I don't think she posted which state, but one of the states is requiring children in, in uh, child protective services, services to get the vaccine and the booster, which again, doesn't make sense, especially knowing what we know now, what type of problems they could have later in life and even now, it makes no sense to keep on continuing this um, vaccine program. So, and plus, the, they're not vaccines, right? Yes, that's, yeah, what would you call these? What would you call the COVID-19 vaccine? What would you, what's about, I think it was Alex Berenson, the journalist who said it's more of a temporary treatment that, you know, expires after what, 60 days. And that's why they keep saying you need the booster and that doesn't account for any of the side effects, but there, there is some, apparently, I guess there is some treatment available. It does have an effect, but were you surprised? Like when I think it was Pfizer in Europe admitted under the testimony with the EU that they never even tested the COVID-19 vaccine, whether it stopped transmission yet the media was, it stops transmission cold. It's safe and effective. Uh, can you comment on any of that? Was it, did it stop transmission? Was it safe and effective? And why did far big pharmacies lie about this? So I'll, throw back the question at you, is it safe and effective? If you have a lot of people who are uh, having severe issues after the vaccine, right? We cannot call it safe and effective. And uh, you have to look at the history of CDC and their pharmacovigilance. They used to do a good job. Uh, they recalled the um, RSV vaccine they recalled spine flu vaccine. They recalled the Vioxx, which was a card, uh, which was a um, anti-inflammatory um, medication that can be used in cardiac patients because it had six thousand six hundred sixty-six deaths of all. But with the vac with this vaccine, no matter how many adverse events are reported, even if they are very um, conservative numbers, they're extremely high. They still are not recalling it. And that's the question that we really need to get these agencies to answer. I know that some legislators have tried, but it hasn't been successful. I'm gonna share something with you because I posted it on Twitter today. A friend uh, flagged it. There are lobbies in the European Union who are calling for mRNA vaccines not to be classified as gene therapy, which means they are classified as gene therapy. And we need to call them that. I agree. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, thank you. We're out of time here. But uh, uh, Dr. Kat Lindley, American physician, member of the Global COVID Summit, 
uh, fighting this medical tyranny. Thank you so much for joining Unleashed with Mark Morano today. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll, and we'll see you next time on TNT.